Today we give thanks, not that our Lord was beaten and abused and mocked and spit on and tortured, but because of what those things accomplished for us, that He endured all of that suffering according to God's plan and purpose and will in order that we might have new bodies and be saved. So let's eat the bread in celebration of Christ. Father, we know that according to the Scriptures, that Jesus' abuse at the hands of His captors was not an accident. That He did not die a martyr to a cause, but a Savior of the world. That according to your plan before there was time that the Lamb was slain. And that you sent Jesus into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And Father, we thank you that through all that Jesus suffered, we have an end to all of our suffering and a home before you and bodies that are made new. And Father, we thank You in Jesus' name. We give You praise. Amen. Paul continues, he says, In the same way also He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. If you read through the Old Testament in a sitting, one of the things that you will see is that the people of Israel who had a covenant with God uh, called the Mosaic Covenant, the Mosaic Law, never lived up to it. They continually rebelled against the commands that God had given them. Uh, he, they continually built idols and new gods for themselves and continually pursued those in a form of spiritual adultery. Uh, pursuing all kinds of other things other than obedience and love for the Lord Himself. And so God said through the prophet Isaiah and also through Ezekiel, one day I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And it will not be like the old covenant. It will be a new covenant where the law will not be written on tablets of stone like the Mosaic Law, but it will be written on your heart, and I will give My Spirit to you, and He will cause you to obey, not from external fear of consequence, but from internal love for the Lord Himself and a desire to please Him that comes from the inside out. And Jesus is telling His disciples and telling us, uh, as Paul records these words, that Jesus is saying, this is it! That new covenant that you were waiting for, it's here! And, the, and every covenant in the Old Testament was sealed in the same way, with blood, with the sacrificed offering. And he's saying, he's saying, when I die tomorrow, which is what's going to happen, the new covenant is being established, and it's being established not in the blood of an animal, but in my blood. And the new covenant that I promised has come. And as you put your trust in me, in Jesus Christ, 
then you get to experience the blessings of the new covenant and life and the indwelling of the Spirit and the certainty of a dwelling in heaven before God. This is it. And so when we celebrate the new covenant, we're celebrating not only the forgiveness of sin, but also membership in God's own family and all of the new covenant blessings that come with that. And so we want to, again, celebrate together. So I'd ask that you wait until all have been served. And again, if you have not yet come to the place where you have put your personal trust in Jesus, allow the elements to pass you by. All of us in this room were at one time in your exact spot. We were all people who were curious about Jesus but hadn't crossed over yet in the personal faith in Him. And if that's where you are, that's okay. Uh, We'd love to talk to you about how to make that next step and pursue faith in Christ. But for today, allow the elements to pass you by. And then wait until all have been served that we might celebrate uh, Christ's sacrifice together.
Jesus died, the disciples did what you might expect. Uh, Jesus was arrested as a traitor to Rome and put to death in the, a traitor's death. Uh, they thought he was leading a rebellion because he claimed to be Lord in place of Caesar. And so all of his disciples ran off. And then just a few days later, the most amazing thing happened. They began proclaiming that Jesus was not dead but alive. And their message went out to the entire world. Because in fact, Jesus was alive. He ap appeared 11 different times to His disciples alive and victorious over the grave. Once to over 500 people all at the same time. Proving that He had conquered death. That He was not rotting in the grave. That He was a living Savior, not a dead one. A dead Savior will do you no good. But a living Savior will save you from all your sin for all time. And Jesus, at the end of 40 days with His disciples, ascended into heaven, from which He will come again. Amen? And we await a Savior from there. And that day is coming. Our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. And so Paul says in, the, in uh, verse 26 of, these, of chapter 11 here, 1 Corinthians, As often as you eat this bread and drink the, the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, and I love this little phrase, until He comes. Because the same way He went into heaven is, is the same way He will return from heaven to claim those who are His. And on that great getting up morning, the archangel will scream and the trumpet will blow and the dead in Christ will rise and then we who are alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the air and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And we are looking forward to that day. And we are celebrating not only what Christ has done for us in the past, but what He will do for us in the future. Amen? So until He comes to Christ... Father, we do celebrate Your Son here this morning. The Savior who was dead and rose. Who paid for sin. Whose broken body healed all of ours. And who has eliminated every barrier between us and You that we might be called the children of God. That we might receive Your indwelling Holy Spirit. That we might enter into the new covenant that we might behold You for eternity and worship You in wonder and praise because You have saved a people for Yourself from every tribe and nation and tongue and language and that they might gather around the Lamb and celebration. And Father, we thank You for all these blessings, for Your manifold wisdom in sending Jesus Christ and for the glory that we will one day experience with Him in Your presence. And Father, we look forward to these things with great joy. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, we have been looking at the subject of discipleship over the last several weeks. 
And uh, we're going to uh, look at it again. Uh, we're going to be in uh, Mark chapter 3 uh, to begin with. But as you make your way there, let me tell you something interesting that I learned this week. Uh, if you ever go to Paris, uh, and I would like to before I die, go to Paris. And one of the things that I would like to do there is to go to the Louvre Museum. Uh, it is probably the leading art museum in the world. And it contains 38,000 individual pieces of art. And I learned some things this week. Uh, that place was originally built as a fortress in the 1100s. And then it was expanded into a palace by subsequent, subsequent kings before Louis XIV uh, moved the royal palace to Versailles and he turned it into a private museum for the royal art collection. And, uh, and then uh, fast forward about 100 years and the French revolutionaries, as you know, um, decided they would like to get ahead on the... Uh, uh, French aristocracy, and um, yeah, that's a joke, a bad one. But nevertheless, um, they, um, they they turned the palace there into a. They kept it open as a museum, but they changed it in one particular way. Beginning in 1793 and continuing down to the present day, what you can do is you can go into the Louvre and secure a permit. And they will give you a stool and an easel. You have to bring your canvas and your paints. And you can go through the museum and sit down in front of any painting. From Mona uh, on down. You can, go, uh, you can paint Mona Lisa. You can paint um, any of the other artworks that are there. Uh, you, any of these old masters that are there hanging on the wall, you can set up your easel, they'll give, you a st they'll give you a stool and an easel, and you just bring your paint and canvas, and you can learn to paint by copying the works of the old masters. It's an amazing thing. And you can do it for free. The permits are free. Uh, they last for three months at a time, and you can go in and learn to paint by painting like the old masters. And you can literally copy them brush stroke for brush stroke. Match their colors exactly. Uh, the only requirement is you have to make the painting that results either 20% smaller or 20% larger than the original. And you cannot copy the signature of the artist because they don't want to let in art forgers. right? But you can make a copy and you can learn to paint like the master by imitating what they did. Now, the point, if some of you are wondering what exactly this has to do with discipleship, is this. The best way to learn to do something is by watching the master do it. The best way to learn to do something is by observing the master do it. Amen? If you want to learn how to fix your car, don't come to my house. Go to somebody who understands how that thing works, right? I pop the hood and I go, hmm, let's see, there's dipstick, there's oil fill, let's see, coolant. Um, okay, that's the valve cover. I mean, I understand plugs and wires and, uh, you know, 
putting in fluids, right? But, that, I'm, but beyond that, I'm kind of at the limit of my knowledge on this, right? You need to go to somebody who is a, who is a certified mechanic, and then they can tell you. And you can learn to do some things just by watching them do it. And you can learn to paint by observing what the old masters did. You can learn a lot of things by watching the master at work. Well, we want to watch the master disciple maker at work and learn how he made disciples uh, there in Mark chapter 3. And then we're going to uh, turn from there to watch Paul and how he made disciples. He looked at what Jesus did, and then he went and reproduced it. And he gives us some example to follow as well of how he applied what Jesus did uh, to his life. And we can uh, apply the same lessons to ours. So, you got your Bible. Uh, Mark chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. And he, that is Jesus, went up on a mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. Now, this is just a short passage, just three verses. And if you're reading this chapter, you might not even notice what Jesus is doing here. But I think there's tremendous wisdom in Jesus' method of disciple-making. If you slow down enough to really look at it, and there are three aspects of Jesus' method. Uh, the first one is calling. The text here says, verse 13, that he called to him those whom he wanted. Now, we're not told what criteria he used or how, why he picked these 12 guys instead of some of the others that followed. We know from, from earlier in Mark, uh, from Mark chapter 1, that Jesus did have some of these guys who became the twelve that he had called to follow him earlier. Uh, others are not mentioned before this. Maybe these folks were the men who had become his friends out of the larger group of his followers. Maybe they were picked because they had the most potential in his eyes. Uh, maybe they were people who had the least potential, and that's why he picked them. First uh, Corinthians tells us that God does pick in the reverse of what we think, that he often picks the least likely candidates for success. And so maybe Jesus picked the guys who were the least impressive out of the group. We don't know. Whatever the case, the point is, is that Jesus picked a small number of people from his circle of relationships. And he invited them into his life in a more intentional and direct way. And if you and I are going to make disciples, then step one in doing that is to identify some people that you would like to invite into your life in an intentional and direct way. Amen? You're going to have to pick out of your circle of relationships certain people and say to them, hey, you know, I may not have everything figured out in my relationship with God, but I have some things figured out, and I would like to invest in you. Would you be willing to join me in an intentional relationship? And if they say yes, then you're well on your way. 
And, of course, once you do that, once you get that yes, you're going to need something to do. So what is it you want us to do? Well, that takes us to the second part. Uh, second aspect of Jesus' method is community. Look at verse 14. What's the first reason Jesus gives for, for why He called them? It says, that they might be with Him. So part of making disciples is being with the person that is calling them to discipleship. And Jesus' purpose, in other words, is intentional relationship. Pulling these guys together into community with Him. And if you read the Gospel accounts, what sticks out to you all the way through is that Jesus turned everything He did with His disciples into an opportunity for them to grow and for them to learn. Everything that happens becomes a lesson and a, and a life experience. And it's something He's drawing a spiritual point from. And, and He used everything that happened to teach them. It wasn't just His teaching, though, that he, they heard Him give to the crowds. It was as they were walking along the road as they encountered other people, as they ate, as they slept, as they rode across the Sea of Galilee back and forth. Uh, everything that they did was an opportunity for Jesus to explain who He was and how to follow Him with loving obedience. Now again, don't miss the point. In the same way, we who are Jesus' disciples, who are trying to make more disciples of Jesus, who will make more disciples of Jesus need to be intentional with them. There is a difference between discipleship and hanging out. Between simply being together and being together in a purposeful way to impart spiritual truth to someone else. There's an intention that Jesus has and that He manifests. You need to spend a lot of time with the people you're discipling, and you need to pull them close to you, and then to treat everything that happens in life, both your life and their life, as an opportunity to learn more about who Jesus is and how to follow Him with loving obedience. Everything in your life. So, let's say that, let's say that they're having trouble in their marriage. They're married. Or they're having trouble because they're not married and they would like to be. Therein is an opportunity to open up God's Word together and to, sh and to see what God has to say about that. And to point them to how to follow Jesus in those circumstances. Let's say they're having trouble with their job. Here again, the Scripture has some things to say about that. What do you do with that? How do I learn how to pray? What does the Scripture say? Let me give you some tips from my life for how I've learned how to apply this to my circumstances in my life. And you can learn to follow me as I follow Jesus. And as a disciple maker, one of the things you want to be able to do is to pull back the curtain on your life and to let them in and let them see how you are following Jesus. So that you begin to say like Paul, come follow me as I follow Christ. And you can show them an example of how this looks in real life. Now the third aspect of Jesus' 
uh, ministry model, his model of discipleship, if you will, is commissioning. Jesus made disciples with ministry in mind. You look at the end of verse 14 verse, uh, and all, all verse 15 there. The text mentions preaching and casting out demons. Now, let me be clear. I don't think that everyone is called to preach or that we will all necessarily confront demonic oppression in people like Jesus' disciples did. In 40 years now as a believer, uh, including 17 as a pastor, I've only confronted one, um, one person that had a demonic influence in their life. Uh, so this has not been a, a hugely common thing. And the New Testament is very clear that we all have differing gifts. God didn't make all of us into preachers. Uh, but the principle of being prepared for ministry through a discipling relationship still applies to all of us, whatever ministry God calls us to. By the way, most of us are called not to ministry like I do on Sunday morning or like I do through the week, but most of us are called to jobs, to uh, to responsibilities out in the marketplace or to responsibilities in our homes. And, and there's a way to follow Jesus in those avenues too. And to make disciples as a mom or make disciples uh, as a dad. Make disciples in the workplace. Make disciples with your neighbors. Make disciples among your family. And the, the idea of discipleship is preparation for ministry. To go out having been with someone who has showed you how to live the Christian life, to then go out from there to do ministry, to make more disciples, to take what has been poured into you and pour it out into other people. And, and, this, and for the disciples, you know, they did what Jesus did. And we, as Jesus' disciples, also are called to do what Jesus did with other people just like the disciples were. So there's, a, there's a, an aspect of calling, and then there's, a, then there's community, and then there's a commissioning out into ministry. Go out and do the things you've seen me do. Uh, that's, what, that's what Jesus' model was. That's what it continued to be throughout his entire life. Uh, his entire ministry boils down to those three things, doing those things with his disciples. And by the way, did it work? Did it work? You and I are here today because it worked. Because 2,000 years ago, Jesus' disciples passed what they had been taught onto other people who passed it down to people who had been taught by them, who passed it to people who had been taught by them, who passed it to people who had been taught by them, and who passed it on and on and on and on down to us, who showed us how to follow Jesus. Does this method work? Yes. It's the only one that works, as a matter of fact. And if you want to get a, a real practical example of how this works uh, in someone who is a follower of Jesus, look at Paul. And look at him in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 
1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 7 to 12. 1 Thessalonians is a small book in your New Testament toward the, toward the back. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 2. This is what Paul says to them. He says, beginning verse 7, But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how like a father with his children we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Now, if you read the account of Paul's time in Thessalonica in verse, uh, I mean, in Acts chapter 17, you'll find that it only gets nine verses because he was not there long. He was not there long. They got thrown out of the previous city they were in. And then Paul and Silas and Timothy, uh, they were in Philippi before. They got, they got beaten and thrown into the stocks. You remember the story. And, and then it, as Paul and Silas are singing hymns in the dark of this dungeon, all of a sudden uh, there's an earthquake and the doors fly open and the stocks fall off of everybody and the jailer's ready to kill himself. Paul says, wait, wait, we're all still here. And the guy rushes in and says, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what they tell him. And he comes to faith in Christ and his whole family comes to faith in Christ. But then after, when, the, when the morning light comes, they've got to get out of Dodge. Everybody, all the leaders in Philippi are saying, yeah, it's all very well, but you need to leave. So they go off to Thessalonica instead. And when they get there, they're able to go and to preach. And they do that successfully for a total of three weeks. And at the end of three weeks, there's a riot and Paul and Silas get run out of town. They leave Timothy behind to, uh, to work with the church that they, that they had gotten planted by that point. And then 1 Thessalonians is written to this little group of people, these, these brand new believers, that have had three weeks with Paul and Silas and Timothy. And if you, if you look at it carefully, what you'll notice in this little text here in, in 1 Thessalonians 2 um, the first thing you'll notice is affection. Affection. It's right there in verse 8. You might want to highlight that word, the word affection. On verse 7 and 8, Paul says that he and his disciples, Silas and Timothy, were as gentle as a nursing mama with her infant when they were with them, and that they had affection toward them. So that they were eager not only to share the gospel, but also their own lives. Now, I've never been a nursing mother, but I have been around them, right? And have you ever seen, have you ever seen a mama grizzly, right? 
just think about doing anything to harm that little baby in his mother's arms or her mother's arms, and you will see Mama Grizzly come out. Amen? Because they love that little baby. And they will happily uh, lay down their life or take yours from you if, if you are to do anything to harm that little child, right? There is affection between a nursing mother and her baby. There's a bond that's there. And Paul says that's the kind of bond that he and, and Silas and Timothy had toward the Thessalonians. That we had affection and love and care and gentleness toward you. That in other words, he says, look, we didn't just come into your life to be the grand poobah teacher. You know, like the, like the mama bird with the baby birds just dropping the worm in. Okay, That was not our job. Our job was to form genuine, loving, concerned, gentle relationship with you to give you not only the Gospel, but our own life too. Our own life. Not just teaching. Because in the New Testament, life and conduct, uh, uh, life and teaching go together. That's why Paul tells Timothy later, watch your life and your doctrine closely. That the one hand washes the other. That, that not only the Gospel is important, but also the way that you live it out with the people you're discipling is important so that they can see that there's a connection and an inner relationship between the two. That your life has changed as a result of knowing Christ through the Gospel. And he says, we shared with you not just the Gospel, but also our lives. We poured into you. We were affectionate toward you. We loved you. And if they did it, by the way, so should we. Amen? So should we. With the people that we disciple, our goal is not simply that they become smarter sinners. Our goal is that their lives be transformed through, uh, through being given truth and being shown with our life as they get invited into it how to walk in it. How to do it. Now there's a second word here in the text for us to focus on. Now, it's, you're not going to see it in this exact word, but you are going to see it in the concept that's here. It's the word example. Uh, the concept is right there verse 9 and 10, where Paul is asking them to remember how he and Silas and Timothy behaved among them. How did we live among you all? We gave you an example. Uh, it was holy and righteous conduct. Verse 10, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. Paul is even so bold as to say that not only did you witness, but we can call God as our witness along with us as, a, as, as to the kind of example that we set. Well, what does that mean for us? I hope it's obvious what that means for us. But in case it's not, we need to set an example of holiness and righteousness and blameless conduct in front of the people that we are discipling. How will they know what Christian maturity looks like 
if we don't show them. They can read about it in their Bible, but people need truth with tennis shoes on. That they, can, that they need to see it walking around. And if they're going to see it walking around, they're going to see it in you and me. And be able to say, well, I know what a Christian is. I've met one. I know how to live like a believer because I know so-and-so. And they've showed me how to do it. And they've showed me what holiness looks like. And they've showed me what righteousness looks like as we respond to, to the Holy Spirit. I know, how, I know what that is. I've seen it. And it must not be an act. It must not be something that's merely external. You ought to be able to call the Lord as witness. Just like they did. Be able to say, you not only know... But God knows how I conducted myself in your presence. That it was genuinely holy and righteous and blameless. And finally, I want you to notice one more important word. It's the word exhortation. Verse 11 and 12, Paul reminds the Thessalonians that he and his companions, they weren't just like mothers, you know, I, my, my mom and dad are here this morning. And of the two, uh, mom was more gentle, right? Um, dad was more hortatory in his parenting, right? Do this. <laughs> do not do that, right? Uh, if you wanted counsel, you went to mom. If you wanted a kick in the pants, you went to dad, right? Still true. Um, and... And sometimes with our, um, with the people we're discipling, we need to be not only gentle and affectionate, but we also need to encourage them, exhort them, charge them, prod them. You know, Hebrews uh, 10.24.25 talks about, let us consider how to spur one another on to love and good deeds. Have you been to the Western store? You know what spurs look like? Those pointy things, right? And you kind of jab them in the horse's side to make, make him go, right? That's the idea. That just like your dad would say to you, Son, go. Go forward. Pursue Christ. Live up to the calling that you has been laid on your life. That there's also an aspect of discipleship that includes exhortation and encouragement and being charged with doing what is right and living up to the fact that you are have been called by God into his kingdom and and to glorify him and you want to do that with your life so it's there's there's encouragement and exhortation and prodding and spurring if you will to do what is right and to do what pleases God and if you are making disciples you've got to do all three of these things you've got to be affectionate and gentle like a mother and you've got to live out an example of how this looks how what does it look like to follow Jesus if you remember back to when you were a brand new believer you did not know 
And you needed to be shown by somebody who took you, took you alongside, who pulled you close into their life and said, come follow me as I follow Jesus. And then you got an idea of how to do this. How do you pray? How do you share the gospel with somebody? Why do we go to church? Why do we read the Old Testament? If Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament, why is there still value in reading it? How do you know that? Where did you learn that? What's communion about? What's baptism about? Guess what? You are there to pull them close and to, and to, and to show them and to teach them what it looks like to live as a believer and then to prod them and encourage them and charge them to do it and to tell them it's worth it. Why is it worth it? Because God has called us to His own kingdom and glory. There is a kingdom and glory awaiting us. As we follow Jesus, the kingdom is coming. Glory awaits. And as Paul says elsewhere, it is glory of such a kind that far outweighs our light and momentary affliction in this life. Amen? And so our job is to, is to show love and to show the right conduct and then to encourage them to do the same. To do just like Jesus did. To call them to us and to spend time with them and then to send them out into mission, into mission and in, into life equipped to do what you and I are doing. Amen? That's the idea. That's Jesus-like disciple-making. That's what it looks like. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You that You give us the truth with tennis shoes on. That we get to see it walking around in the lives of our fellow believers. We get to see it in the pages of Scripture in the life of Jesus. And all we need to do is to follow Him. And do the same thing with other people, just as was done to us once upon a time. And Father, we, we would ask that out of this church, You would raise up many disciple-makers who are excited to tell other people who Jesus is, what He has done for them, and invite them to follow Him as they follow Christ. And to be shown what it looks like that they too might follow Jesus and might go out into the world and tell other people about Jesus and raise up disciples who make more disciples, who make more disciples until Christ comes. And Father, we pray knowing that apart from Your Holy Spirit that we don't have the ability to do this. We are utterly and completely dependent on the empowering presence of the Spirit to set us free from sin, to move us into maturity, and to help us to make disciples. Because this is a spiritual thing and we cannot do it under our own power. And so Father, we pray that Your Holy Spirit would move in a mighty way among Your people that we might make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.